hppodcraft.com. It goes past the powers of my pen to try to describe Real Foot Lake for you so that you, reading this, will get the picture of it in your mind as I have it in mine. For Real Foot Lake is like no other lake that I know anything about. It is an afterthought of creation. The rest of this continent was made and had dried in the sun for thousands of years, for millions of years for all I know, before Real Foot came to be. It's the newest big thing in nature on this hemisphere, probably, for it was formed by the great earthquake of 1811, just a little more than a hundred years ago. That earthquake of 1811 surely altered the face of the earth, and in the midst of the retching of the land and the vomiting of the waters, it depressed to varying depths a section of the earth crust sixty miles long, taking it down, trees, hills, hollows and all and a crack broke through to the Mississippi River so that for three days the river ran upstream, filling the hole. Real Foot is, and has always been, a lake of mystery. In places, it is bottomless. Other places, the skeletons of the cypress trees that went down when the earth sank still stand upright, so that if the sun shines from the right quarter and the water is less muddy than common, A man peering face downward into its depths sees, or thinks he sees, down below him, the bare top limbs upstretching like drowned men's fingers, all coated with the mud of years and bandaged with pennons of the green lake slime. In still other places, the lake is shallow for long stretches, no deeper than breast deep to a man, but dangerous because of the weed growths and the sunken drifts which entangle a swimmer's limbs. There are stretches of unbroken woodland around it and slashes where the cypress knees rise countlessly like headstones and footstones for the dead snags that rot in the soft ooze. There are deadenings with the lowland corn growing high and rank below and the bleached, fire-blackened girdled trees rising above, barren of leaf and limb. There are long, dismal flats, where in the spring the clotted frog spawn clings like patches of white mucus among the weed stalks, and at night the turtles crawl out to lay clutches of perfectly round white eggs with tough rubbery shells in the sand. There are bayous leading off to nowhere and sloughs that wind aimlessly like great blind worms to finally join the big river that rolls its semi-liquid torrents a few miles to the westward. You just heard excerpts from the 1911 story Fish Head by Irvin S. Cobb, and you are joining us here as we discuss this story on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and we are at hppodcraft.com, and with us, we're joined by one of our favorite guests. Mr. Matt Barisi. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Matt, great to have you back. I think, when was the last time we had you on? Was it uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth? Yeah, it was on for Innsmouth. So you're kind of like our ichthyologist now. <laughs> yeah, any story dealing with amphibious Aquaman type people, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> you guys have seen that meme where it's Aquaman beating Cthulhu? Yes, I've seen that, yeah. He's like, they said I was useless. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Our reader there was, of course, uh, Andrew Lehman. Glad to have him back. And, I, you know, I, I floated this out. I said, we're doing this. And then the next story we're going to cover is called The Mummy's Foot. Which one of those do you want to do? And he said, I'll do them both. So we're going to have them for two weeks. Nice. We all win. The funny thing about that, we picked those stories kind of randomly to cover. And I asked Chris, because I like doing these themes we've been doing, you know, Werewolf History Month and Ambrose Beers Month. And, what you know, what do you think? And like you said. What about body parts? Yeah, like Lovecraft's Anatomy kind of. And yeah. I thought 
yeah, that's that sounds okay. So let's see if there's some other stories like that. And I started combing through my annotated supernatural horror and literature, which is, of course, where we're pulling all these things from. Mm-hmm. In case you're just tuning in, you don't know what the show's about. There's a lot of freaking body part titles in there. I know. I started compiling them, and I think we're going to run with this for a couple of months. Uh, we've got stories like The Snout, that Body Snatcher, The House in the Brain, The Invisible Eye, The Owl's Ear. The dead smile, the face, all that stuff is coming up, but there were just so many of them. I think we're going to end on the red hand, which is an Arthur Mackin story. Yeah, back to Mackin. And that's from Three Imposters. It's connected to Three Imposters somehow. Yeah, I think there's characters in that story that appear in the Three Imposters. So after we kind of you know finish up these body part stories, then that'll kind of spin us into a month where we'll look at the Three Imposters. So we've, we've actually lined up the next few months of the show, and we're going to put a reading list up on our show notes with links to the stories. They're all public domain, and so... You know, while you're out on the beach doing your reading and or pretending to read while you're looking at people's naked body parts, you can actually <laughs> uh, you can double your pleasure by also reading about them. The writer of this story, Irvin S. Cobb, is yes. a really I didn't know much about him. He's a really interesting guy. First, let's talk about the atmosphere that he puts together for this story. In that first paragraph, he says that it's past the powers of his pen to describe real foot. But I thought he did a, a pretty good job. He did an outstanding job. He's really amazing writer. I just I'm loving it. I love the story so much, and I love the way he writes. In the beginning of the story, he's talking about and describing this place, Real Foot Lake, which came to be after an earthquake happened. And this is a real thing. It's historically, this happened. Yeah. The river flowed backwards and filled up this whole area and made it a lake. It's supposed to look like a foot. I mean, that's kind of where they think the name came from. It doesn't look like a foot. I looked at it on Google Maps. Oh, yeah. I, I looked at the actual lake, and it, I don't understand where they get a foot from that at all. I, when I was doing the research about it, actually, they think it might just be a misprint. There was a Red Foot River before the lake. So when the lake happened, they think maybe they separated the D in some printing so that it became an E and an L. So that it was just called Real Foot oh. Lake. So it was just sort of something that evolved over time with maps. But, of course, there's all kinds of crazy stories. Yeah, about. there's this Native American myth. It's uh, Chickasaw. That real foot was this deformed Native American guy. And, and this is, as the legend goes, he had a bad foot. He eventually became chief and he wanted to marry this Choctaw princess, like this other tribe. And the great spirit said, you're not worthy of her, so don't bother. And if you try and get her, you'll you'll have my wrath. The great spirit said this. And of course he does and he decides he, he wants her anyway. So he goes and kidnaps her and forces her to marry him. And then the great spirit steps down on his whole village and makes an impression, which is the, the shape of this lake. Mm. That's where it came from and it filled up with water. So they're all dead at the bottom of it. And that's supposed to be an old Native American myth, but I doubt that's true. It probably came <laughs> after the fact. Just because it's Native American doesn't mean it's old. You know, like some yeah. Native American guy could have just made it up last week and you can go, well, it's a Native American story. <laughs> I'm glad that you've, you said that you doubt that that's true, that the great spirit did that. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't typically step on villages. It's just not something right. he does. So no, no, the Great Spirit's much nicer than that. Well, the explanation in the uh, in the story that Cobb gives is that it comes from the lake's fancied resemblance in its outline to the splay reeled foot of a cornfield negro. So it looks like a working man's foot, basically, all screwed up from being out there and doing hard labor. It's interesting that uh, you know in 1911 there's still these areas of mystery in the United States that it's still a frontier country. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that he says that this lake is an afterthought of creation. You know, everything else in the U.S. was probably settled uh, when you know the continent was formed, but here's this thing that just showed up. You know, yeah. 100 years ago. This entire swamp area. But then around 1911, there's all this crazy criminal activity going on there. Some rich guys bought all the land. There's people that live there and use this lake as a source of food and 
jobs and all this stuff. So these guys bought all the land around there and they weren't going to allow people to use it. Right. They bought like the land on the shore. Exactly. So that they had control of the lake and the people that lived around there were not going to take it. So they started, they called them night riders. They would go out and find those people that were trying to take this land away from them and, and uh, kill them. They killed two lawyers. This was all, when was that going on? It was right around the time the story. 1908. Uh, Urban Cobb is a Kentucky native. I think this lake actually extends into what is now Kentucky. And so this is an area that he was obviously somewhat familiar with mm-hmm. through personal experience. But I imagine that the Night Riders being in the news as these kind of these underground kind of uh, rural criminals going in and fighting the man so that they can keep their fishing area is yeah. pretty, pretty amazing. I think the governor had to call out the militia to he get did. in there. And But eventually it, it got sorted out and they made the land public domain. They had to make an area of the lake where people had it, were able to access it. And right. it all got sorted out. And those people that got murdered those lawyers there were people arrested but nothing ever happened you know they couldn't really prove who did it but it was mm-hmm. it was a lynching those guys were hung in the story it says it's a great place for fish i mean when he transitions from kind of giving you the the larger environment of it letting you hear the sounds and kind of giving you the background and then he talks he focuses in on the type of fish that are there there's these big fish eating cannibal fish there. Well, this here you can totally see the influence on Innsmouth. What, what he's talking about, the copious amounts of fish in the area and the game and everything. I think that almost, it's not the exact line, but it's very similar appears in Innsmouth, how there's a curious quantity of fish in the Innsmouth area and stuff like that. Oh, one thing that I thought was great was the uh, what was the shovel-nosed cat, which is a deformed kind of freshwater sturgeon. And then you've got the uh, the garfish, which is a has a snout like an alligator and is a close link to the reptilian period. These are all seem seeming like very... Lovecraftian ideas, but also he's making that connection to the old uh, ancient world and he's and he's already we've got a kind of deformed fish. So everything about this area is kind of speaking of deformity and strangeness. Yeah. Of course, the catfish in this lake are the most, you know, those, that, that's the those are the big stars of the story. But the biggest of them all are the catfish. These are monstrous creatures, these catfish of real foot. Scaleless, slick things with corpsey dead eyes and poisonous fins like javelins and long whiskers dangling from the sides of their cavernous heads. Six and seven feet long they grow to be and to weigh 200 pounds or more, and they have mouths wide enough to take in a man's foot or a man's fist and strong enough to break any hook save the strongest and greedy enough to eat anything, living or dead or putrid, that the horny jaws can master. Oh, but they are wicked things, and they tell wicked tales of them down there. They call them man-eaters and compare them, in certain of their habits, to sharks. Yeah, and I wouldn't believe I wouldn't have believed this was true except for I know this I saw an episode of Man vs. Wild where he's in the swamp. And I don't know if you guys watched that show, but Bear Grylls is like when he's in the swamp and he puts his hand, he's like, This is a way to fish, and he puts his hand in a stump underwater, and one of these catfish grabs his arm and and then he just beats it over a over a log or something and kills it. And that thing was huge. I mean, it had to be three or four feet long. There you go. That's that's right. That's the length. The biggest recorded. Now, there are two types of catfish, at least the, these are the big ones in the United States, which is the channel catfish and blue catfish. The channel catfish is smaller than the blue catfish. The biggest ever channel catfish that was ever caught was four foot long. Whoa. That's like the biggest. That's the record. Right. The blue catfish. This is the newest record. Okay, this was in 2011, so just a couple of years ago. This guy Nick Anderson he caught a 143 pound blue catfish. Oh my god! But that was only again. It was only like five feet long, and he in this story says they were like seven foot long, which doesn't happen. However, 
If you go to Europe and Asia, there is the Wells catfish, and those get to be I, up to two to three meters long. Meters. Holy crap, that's a big fish. <laughs> yeah, we had, I mean, growing up, we had, Chris and I grew up on the Mississippi, and that was probably, if you had a monster legend in the Quad Cities, that was it. Everybody would say there were these giant catfish. Well, the way they would describe this, this doesn't make much sense to me, is that they were just kind of down there on in the mud. They didn't move much. They were just gigantic catfish down on the bottom in the mud bed of the Mississippi. And, you know, divers would go down there and go, oh, you know, get freaked out. And the, It was and, by the locks. Right. So that the water would keep flowing in. And the, the legend was that them being by the locks, when they opened up, all this water would come in and they would bottom feed. So they would just be at the, at the entryway to the locks and just let all the water and food and stuff rush in and fill up their mouths. That was a legend. Mm-hmm. Completely untrue. <laughs> Not true at all. <laughs> right. Right. But I was very frightened by them. Sure. Well, I, when I was a kid, I, I think there were catfish in Lake Geneva. Oh, no, Fox River. There were catfish in the Fox River. And those mm-hmm. th- they were creepy looking fish. They're disgusting. I also wanted to find out what are the biggest catfish and what's the truth to it. And I looked up, you know, catfish legends or huge catfish legends. And they're everywhere. You know, there was so much stuff. It was pretty amazing. Well, we, we talked about how this lake may have been formed by this Negro or named after this Negro foot. Or maybe it was an Indian chief's foot. And I find it interesting that those legends kind of both meet when we get to the description of the title character of the story. It's kind of incorporated into his heritage. His name's Fishhead, and, and here's where he's introduced. Fishhead was of a piece with this setting. He fitted into it as an acorn fits its cup. All his life he had lived on real foot, always in the one place at the mouth of a certain slough. He had been born there of a Negro father and a half-breed Indian mother, both of them now dead. And the story was that before his birth, his mother was frightened by one of the big fish so that the child came into the world most hideously marked. Anyhow, Fishhead was a human monstrosity, the veritable embodiment of nightmare. He had the body of a man, a short, stocky, sinewy body. But his face was as near to being the face of a great fish as any face could be and yet retained some trace of human aspect. His skull sloped back so abruptly that he could hardly be said to have a forehead at all. His chin slanted off right into nothing. His eyes were small and round, with shallow, glazed, pale yellow pupils, and they were set wide apart in his head, and they were unwinking and staring like a fish's eyes. His nose was no more than a pair of tiny slits in the middle of the yellow mask. His mouth was the worst of all. It was the awful mouth of a catfish, lipless and almost inconceivably wide, stretching from side to side. Also, when Fishhead became a man grown, his likeness to a fish increased, for the hair upon his face grew out into two tightly kinked slender pendants that drooped down either side of the mouth like the beards of a fish. So creepy. That is such a good description. That's amazing. Yeah, we're going a little heavy on the pull quotes here in the beginning, but the writing in this story is amazing. Yeah, and you can clearly see the description of the bus driver in Innsmouth is almost, I mean, you know, Lovecraft was conversant with the story, right? Yeah. Yes. And uh, you can clearly see the influence there. And I mean, that's basically the whole town of Innsmouth looks like this guy. It's those, um, those staring, unblinking eyes that really get to me. You know, what I really like about that, too, is that the, the legend is that his mom saw a catfish that scared her. And that's why he looks like a catfish, which makes me think about my wife, you know, because she was scared by a really cute baby. Uh-huh. There you go. Which is great now. But when he turns into adult, I think it's going to be really disturbing that he'll still look like a cute baby. 
back to the story. Now, Fishhead was part of this community, but only sort of. People just kind of kept clear of him, and he lived out by himself in this cabin. People kept clear of him because they were kind of afraid of him. Yeah. Because he was just so ghastly looking. Probably didn't make a lot of friends, so that made him even more strange. But he also supposedly had an affinity with fish. Right, yeah. I mean, people say that the catfish gather in sort of unnatural you know, quantities around his dwelling out there in the lake. He, he lives in this sort of little lean-to or shack. There's a lot of catfish around there. Now, people from the city will come in and he'll guide them to hunt or fish or that sort of thing. Other than that, he's completely alone. You know, the detail here that I really liked is that he, it says, um, he cooks his food in a primitive fashion outside over a hole in the earth and he drinks the saffron water of the lake uh, out of a dipper made of a gourd. So it's like he actually is drinking this lake water. (laughs) It's so disgusting. But the detail about his dwelling that's important is there's this kind of long fallen tree trunk outside his shack. That extends out over into the water. It's kind of like a naturally made pier, I imagine. And every night after Fishhead's done all his work and cooked his dinner, he walks out onto the log and he just hangs out there and sort of communes with the fishes, I guess. That's what people think is going on. But that's his spot in the evening. Until, you know, sometimes, what is it? There's something about he he lets out this uh, call. Calls to the fish, to the cats. But he swims with the fish. He feeds with, that's the gross thing. It says he feeds with them. Yeah. Well, nobody who's from, you know, the real foot region will go out there and, and get their legs or their arms wet anywhere around this guy's place. Except so, for two guys. Except for two guys. Exactly. And I love this. We've got our setting. We've got our main character, this deformed kind of hero. And then our plot is sparked with a simple fact, which is a, a great piece of writing. It happens in two sentences. Here Fishhead had lived and here he was going to die. The Baxters were going to kill him. And this day in midsummer was to be the time of the killing. Boom. Oh. Suddenly it turns into a noir or something. I don't know. I just, I really love the way that that's laid out for you. Yeah. It's, it, you know, he dies. They say right now he's going to die. So don't get, get out of your head any idea that he's going to, to make it, even though as I'm still reading the story, I'm hoping that he's going to make it. It's funny how you want that too. They introduce him. You should be repulsed by him, but I already get that feeling like, I kind of like fish head, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I like fish head. So what was the incident that, I mean, what, why do the Baxters want to kill this guy? So the Baxters wanted to kill him because uh, they got drunk one night and accused Fishhead of stealing their fish, which he didn't do. So they come up and they accuse him and he just stares at him. And then one of the guys slaps him and he basically <laughs> kicks both their asses, <laughs> which is awesome. I mean, then, you, then you're then he's that's awesome building of the protagonist because, I mean, I guess he's the protagonist of the story because you're, you're you're rooting for him. You, you, yeah. you want him to succeed. Yeah, I, I love that. they He just turns around and gives them the what does it say? Uh, Eating of, the, of their lives, blooding <laughs> their noses and bruising their lips with hard blows against their front teeth and finally leaving them mauled and prone in the dirt. Yeah, <laughs> I love also, it. And it's on top of that, they say, you know, they were two freeborn sovereign whites and this black guy beat them down. So it's not just that he physically dominated them. Also, he's supposed to not even touch them because he's unclean because he's a black guy. Right. It's yeah. great. They got beat down for being jerks by the less the least of all of us. You know what I mean? All right. So now they're back for revenge. They want their right. vengeance on Fishhead. Jake and Joel Baxter. They're pretty embarrassed by getting their getting beat down by Fishhead. So they come up with a plan to get their revenge. They've got a really crappy little dugout boat that they have. And they know that Fishhead's going to be out busy fishing and doing all of his stuff during the day. So they get in the boat. They One of them's piloting. One of them's got the gun, the shotgun, and they row out to his. Now, remember, people, you know, it said that people don't like going around Fishhead's villa out there it's pretty it's pretty dangerous but they're like we got to kill this guy so they they kind of paddle out there they hide behind there's a 
weedy banks kind of around the place where they can get a good hiding spot. They get there and they're going to wait. They've got a good look at that tree trunk where they know he's going to hang out when he comes home. Yeah. But they can't be seen. I, I don't understand their plan here because if they're intent on murdering the guy anyway, without there's not going to be any witnesses. Why don't you just go shoot him in his shanty? Like there's no like they're hiding in the weeds and stuff like that. I think it's because they're cowards. Yeah. Just oh yeah. I think that's it. One of the great lines in here he talks about how it took them months to get up the courage to actually do something to him. Yeah. Like this isn't right after the incident. It took them a long time to finally get up the courage. But <laughs> they knew that there weren't going to be any witnesses out there and there's not going to be any retribution because most people don't really like Fishhead anyway. So yeah. when he dies, you know, there's not going to be an FBI investigation into his death. It's going to just kind of go away. And they know that there's great description as they're waiting there. And the sun's going down of the swamp animals that are, you know, coming up with the dusk, the green bodied flies and the big mosquitoes and uh, a monster crawfish big as a chicken lobster crawls out. I mean, all of this stuff, oh, bull bats flittering back and forth over the tops of the trees, a pudgy muskrat. The descriptions are just beautiful and revolting at the same time. I haven't read a lot of Irvin S. Cobb. We can talk about it more later, but what a writer, man. This guy's great. He's great. He's outstanding. Well, eventually, Fishhead does show up. He walks out to his spot. I guess what these guys don't realize is that, aside from being deformed, Fishhead's kind of a superhero. He's got, like, catfish sense or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> because somehow, he turns around and he looks, and he immediately catches that there are gun barrels. Catches the glint of the gun. No, well, not only the glint of the gun, but he can kind of see the gleam of Joel's eyes through the huddle of the drift and the green. At dusk. At dusk. In that swift passage of time, too swift almost to be measured by seconds, realization flashed all through him, and he threw his head still higher and opened wide his shapeless trap of a mouth. And out across the lake he sent skittering and rolling his cry. And in his cry was the laugh of a loon and the croaking bellow of a frog and the bay of the hound, all the compounded night noises of the lake. And in it, too, was a farewell and a defiance and an appeal. The heavy roar of the duck gun came. I love that description of the call. That's amazing. And I love the description of what happens to Fishhead after they shoot him. It's not just like they shoot him and he falls in the river. The way that his throat is torn out and all that. I mean, he's dead. There's no there's no question about it at that point. They shoot him and they shoot him in the throat. And he doesn't die instantly. He sort of flails around a bit on the log and then falls in the water. I mean, they say something in death still as much fish as man. As much fish as man. It really is upsetting that they did that. They kill him. him. Yeah, I, I was so Even at out. that point, I guess I still didn't think it would happen, but it does. And he greasily slides off into the water and the gun blast makes the crappy boat tip a little bit and take on some water as this happens. And then something strikes the boat from below and knocks Jake and Joel into the lake. Yeah. Now, the log that Fishhead was on is actually closer to them than the shore. So Joel makes for it. But then something grabs him from below. This is a harrowing part of the story where they're pulling him down bit by bit. And then I love that detail of his uh, his fingernails tearing four little white strips in the tree bark as oh, he's yeah. being pulled underwater. Because you could you could totally see how you would go to that lake and be like, there are the four strips of his fingernails. You know what I mean? Where he was like pulled down into the lake. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Just as something that kids tell each other right there on that log is where the man was pulled under by the catfish. The first one, when he goes down, 
it's this slow, you know, the thing gets him and just slowly pulls him down. So it really is that image of the fingernails raking along the log. But Jake, the other brother, has it far worse because he sees this happen to his brother. So when he makes for the log himself, he's like, I'm not going to have my legs down in there to get grabbed by no catfish. So he jumps for it. His legs go up over the log, but unfortunately that forces his face and his chest down into the water. And a big f***ing catfish comes up. <laughs> I mean, it actually makes an appearance, you know. And it gets a hold of his flannel shirt with its mouth. And it says his hand is speared on a fin. Yeah. You know, while he's flailing around, which is such a cool detail. Because, you know, catfish have those crazy spikes Fines. coming out of the front of yeah. their face. Yeah. And this one isn't uh, any kind of slow and steady. <laughs> you know, he just gets really nastily pulled into the water. And there's a big whirlpool and disturbance. And then gets quieter. The night noises fill in the space again. And it's just kind of empty. And that's the end of the story. There's a little break. And then we get one last paragraph, which says, The bodies of all three came ashore on the same day, near the same place. Except for the gaping gunshot wound where the neck met the chest, Fishhead's body was unmarked. But the bodies of the two Baxters were so marred and mauled that the real footers buried them together on the bank without ever knowing which might be Jake's. And which might be Joel's. So that is the the end of that story. I love that little paragraph at the end. Gives it an almost a, a journalistic verisimilitude. And his body, Fishhead's body, was untouched except for the shotgun blast. And the other two were eaten so badly that they don't know which was which yeah. brother's body. I used to go, well, we didn't, you know, I, we couldn't really swim in the Mississippi when I was a kid. If we wanted to swim, we had to go out to this lake. Yeah. West Lake. Did you ever go out there, Chris? Oh, yeah. It was, I was happy with it because it's the only beach I knew of or anything like that. But the water was pretty nasty. It's I mean, gross, it's, yeah. It's greenish yellow. You you can't open your eyes. No. If you do, you wouldn't see anything anyway. <laughs> I remember going there with my goggles. Like I had swim goggles and I put them on and mm. they were completely useless. <laughs> you couldn't see anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's. it's just kind of disgusting water to get pulled down into. There's so much nastiness. Lovecraft wrote about this story. Still further carrying on our spectral tradition is the gifted and versatile humorist Irvin S. Cobb, whose work, both early and recent, contains some finely weird specimens. Fishhead, an early achievement, is banefully effective in its portrayal of unnatural affinities between a hybrid idiot and the strange fish of an isolated lake, which at the last avenged their biped kinsman's murder. Interesting that Lovecraft called him an idiot. I don't know Why if is that... he an idiot? There's... He didn't do anything idiotic in the story. Well, he's sort of portrayed as sort of a simpleton, right? Like an idiot, like a... He like subhuman kind of in that sense. Yeah, well, you're right. You're right. Subhuman, but not not an idiot. You never know. Fishhead could have been in there working on a novel. <laughs> well, what what did you guys think of the story? You know, I I like the description. I like the descriptive writing. I have to say that it was very matter of fact. Here's the setting. All of a sudden, these guys are murdering him, and then there's vengeance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was very. Yeah. I guess it wasn't satisfying to me in that sense that it wasn't like, well, I don't know. It's not that kind of story. It was a, um, I liked it. Okay. I don't know. You know, Irvin Cobb, I apparently wrote a lot of these things that just sort of give you local color of the area where he grew up around Kentucky and that sort of thing. And I think it is in line with that. In fact, Matt, when you point out that people could probably look at that log and have a story about it, it's almost like it's a, it's a story. Somebody tells somebody else to describe something like that. You know, it's, 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 as you say, it's very direct. Yeah, it is. And, and short too. It's a really short story, but I, I, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it, and I was excited and involved, and I'm surprised at how much I cared about what happened to Fishhead. I think it's because he's such an underdog, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's a deformed guy that nobody likes, and yeah. these drunk jerks pick on him, so uh, it's too bad that he doesn't get the... Rev- I mean, he does get a beat-em-up once, but it's too bad that it's the 
the catfish that get to do the mauling. I was kind yeah. of hoping that fish would get to do it. But this fits into a genre of literature that I didn't know I was such a big fan of, which is the animal revenge genre. Mm, <laughs> like, yes. I just read this book uh, by Patricia Highsmith. Yeah. A couple of months ago. We were talking about it's this, a, yeah. Yeah, it's a collection of short stories called The Animal Lover's Book of Beastly Murder. It just came back in a print. She's a dynamite writer anyway. She wrote Strangers on a Train and The Talented Mr. Ripley and those Ripley books. She's really, really great writer. But uh, that entire collection of stories is all just animals getting revenge on people. And you would think that that theme would wear thin after 10 or 11 stories, but it doesn't, man. I mean, I was on board with every single one of them. <laughs> An elephant, a horse, uh, a cat. They all just kill people. And that's all the stories are. And I wish there could have been 50 more of them. I mean, it was just great. <laughs> That John Hodgman book, The Areas of My Expertise, mm-hmm. he says the greatest, he thinks the greatest film ever made would probably be called All Animals versus All Humans. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know. I kind of agree. That'd be a heck of a battle. I would have to put it on, unless it was Barisi fighting dogs, then right. I would put my money on Barisi. Right. Because we had a longstanding uh, discussion because Barisi says that he can beat any dog. I, I disagree. Can. I can. I can. can. I've, I've demonstrably proved this to you a number of yeah. occasions. I mean, I, I don't know why I have to keep having this argument with you. And I agree. I wholeheartedly, I don't, it seems quite obvious to me that Barisi could beat any dog in a fight. Well, I think we did hash this out finally that my misunderstanding was I thought it was just Barisi, maybe with a dagger or something, you know, just kind of thrown <laughs> into a pit with the dog. But you get to leverage all of humankind's, you know, technology and stuff against no. the dog. Right. Naked exactly. Matt well, Barisi, naked Matt Barisi and any dog. In a pit. Breezy walks out of that pit. Oh, you think that, Chris? I'm 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 glad you think so highly of me. My, my, my orange kazoo is. Do I know where your orange kazoo is? Yeah. I don't know where your orange kazoo is. <laughs> Let's look upstairs. This is these are the questions. The yellow kazoo. Where is your orange kazoo? And we had it. I know we had it. Yeah, we had it somewhere. We had it. I know we. Had you know we had the tears somewhere. I know we did have it here I, I actually think that Violet understood we were discussing you battling dogs and was like, I got to distract this discussion. I really don't like the way this is going. Hey! <laughs> Found it. <laughs> that debate was going on for so long that I honestly, when I see a dog, I go, hmm, I wonder if Matt could take that dog. I think it all the time. Well, I don't think it ever. I know it. Why did I doubt myself? What do we know about Irvin Cobb? Seems like a pretty, pretty cool guy. I didn't know anything about him before the story, but apparently he was a pretty accomplished writer at the time. He was a journalist. He wrote a bunch of plays and he he wrote some movies, too. And, you know, he comes from Paducah, Kentucky, and that really, you know, he wrote at the Paducah Daily News and then eventually wound up covering uh, some Russo-Japanese peace conference that got him hired by Pulitzer. And then he wound up moving to New York and became, you know, the highest paid reporter in the U.S. So he's got... This great journalistic background covered World War One, And then after that, a lot of his short stories that he'd written had got turned into silent films. And I think even a few talkies, I think there's a movie called The Woman Accused that yeah, had Cary Grant. Grant in it. Yeah. But then he, he started acting a little bit. He was in 10 films uh, in the 30s. And he even hosted the Sixth Academy Awards. Is that right? He hosted the Academy Awards in 1935. I mean, he's a really big personality. He, he had kind of a triple chin and he was always smoking a cigar. I mean, he was like a very big American personality in the early 20th century. It didn't last. I mean, whatever that fame was, people, he's not in the public consciousness anymore. No. But surely in Kentucky and in, in the whereabouts, there's a lot of, you know, Irvin Shrewsbury Cobb buildings and, you know, things that are named for him. And, you know, he's had a real impression on 
the kind of southern midwestern culture but you know really that's what he's known for is is his kind of humorous stories about the local color of the Tennessee, Ohio, Kentucky kind of area. I liked this enough that I think I'm going to pick up a couple of his books and check it out. I know that there's a story or there's a book called Old Judge Priest that's uh, that was kind of his most favorite uh, famous character, Judge Priest. There's another story he wrote called The Unbroken Chain that is apparently uh, a, a well-known weird tale that maybe in the future yeah. we could look at. Well, that's all we've got for this week. That was our uh, our first story in the Lovecraft's Anatomy series that we're going to be doing here, Fishhead. We're, we're going to be back next week with The Mummy's Foot by Gautier, and uh, we can get into what that's all about, obviously, next week. Just want to thank everybody who contributed to our Kickstarter once again uh, that's going to get us out to Providence oh, this yeah. August to do our live show. And we're really cl- close to getting our second stretch goal, which is uh, Chris and Chad go back to school, which is something we've been talking about doing forever. So if we hit that, then we're going to go into production on it. We, we've been talking about it, what would be the first story that we would cover for the Chris and Chad go back to school thing. And you want to do Beowulf, right? I want to do Beowulf. I mean, it's one of the oldest stories written in the English language. Seems like a good place to start. Yeah. But I, I had a really interesting conversation just the other day. I was talking to Stuart Gordon and I said, hey, have you ever heard of Horror at Martin's Beach, which is that story that Lovecraft wrote with his wife? Mm-hmm. And he actually hadn't heard it of it before, which is you know, it's awesome to be the guy that tells Stuart Gordon Stuart, about a Lovecraft wow. story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I described it to him and he said, oh, that kind of sounds like Beowulf to me. Oh, look at that. Well, we're going to be covering lots of body parts coming up soon. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Matt, so much for uh, joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always a pleasure. Always happy to have you here. And uh, next time we're talking about any kind of repellent uh, fish human uh, relationships, we'll make sure to get you on board once again. <laughs> I'm your man. I am Chad Fiverr. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Matt Parisi. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. HPPodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs>